So the, uh, the, the two commands come from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, verse 8. And it's really the second one that I want to focus on a little bit. Um, because loving your neighbor does encapsulate, well, love for God and love for neighbor encapsulates the law, summarizes our duty towards God. And of course, as I said earlier, um, loving our neighbor is the summation of the second half of what's called the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. So honor your father and mother. Uh, this is what it means to love your neighbor. Honor your father and mother, respect your parents. That's the bedrock of society, a society that no longer respects their um, elderly. Um, it's a crumbling society. And I think Asian uh, societies uh, look at the West and laugh at the way that we treat our elderly folks. Um, you shall not murder. Um, if, if you love your neighbor, then you won't hurt him. You won't take his life. Uh, you will respect him as someone created in the image of God. Don't commit adultery. Uh, if you love your neighbor, you will, treat, you will not treat them as something to be used and abused. And you will not steal your neighbor's wife. Um, you won't break into their marriage. Um, if you love your neighbor, you won't steal from them. Uh, you won't take their stuff and you won't traumatize them, invading their personal private space, breaking into their home, whatever it might be. Um, if you love your neighbor, you will not deceive them through false witness, either in a court of law or in everyday conversation. You won't deceive them by telling them lies. And you won't covet what they have. It, you'll, you'll be happy for them that they are as blessed as they are, and you, you'll be content uh, that God has blessed them in the way. And you won't covet what they have. You must have that. That's what it means to love um, your neighbor. However, I don't think when Jesus says that love fulfills the law, that the second half of the uh, Decalogue is an exhaustive list of how we are to love our neighbors. And I think as you move into the New Testament, um, I think that there is a fuller description um, of what it means to love your neighbor. Um, I think that if we could turn for a few minutes to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there we have a clear explanation of what love is and what it means to love our neighbor. Now, uh, last time I was here in Moody'sburn on a Sunday, I spoke on this, but I only got through about three of the uh, descriptive terms that are used here. So there are 15 descriptive terms in 1 Corinthians 15 used to describe love. And I, for a few minutes, I, I just want to think about them, um, think about some of these descriptive terms and what it means to be a loving neighbor. Um, and this is what it means to be a loving neighbor. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. 
It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease, and where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, um, if you think of uh, these descriptive uh, terms that Paul gives us from verses 4 to 8a as the many facets of a diamond, I think that's helpful. Um, and, and these things are true of love all of the time. Um, patience, kindness. It's not just like, okay, today I'm patient, tomorrow I'll be kind. These are the facets of love. This is what love looks like. This is what being a loving neighbor looks like. All of these things, all of the time, true of me as an individual. So the first one then is love is patient. Love is patient. One of the older versions um, of the Bible, I think it's the authorized version, says love suffereth long, suffereth long. Um, the word is macrothemeo, and it, it carries this idea of it puts up with people for a long time. So that's what being a loving neighbor is like, putting up with someone for a long time. Love has a long rather than a short fuse. Some of us are a bit like fireworks. If somebody lights our touch paper, we're likely to explode all over the place and possibly in their face. We have no patience. People have to tiptoe around us because if they say the wrong things, we're liable to blow without any notice. We may be great speakers. We may give a lot, contribute a lot to church life and funds. We may be gifted in a thousand different ways, but we're not patient. Now, the word which uh, is used here, uh, so there was a third century commentator called Chrysostom, and he says that it speaks of a man or woman who has been wronged. They have the opportunity to avenge themselves, but they choose not to. That's what patience is. I wonder if you've ever been wrong, had the opportunity to get even chose not to. Love is patient, doesn't fly off the handle um, at the first uh, given opportunity. Now, lest you think to yourself, I'm sure these Corinthians 
with their uh, Greek philosophy, and they're only 50 miles west of Athens, the epicenter of Greek philosophical thought. I'm sure these Corinthians, as they received this, love is patient, were just lapping it up and thinking, oh, this is great teaching. Um, isn't it wonderful that we have such philosophical concepts? Well, this went against everything that they'd been taught since they were at school. What they'd been taught at school was that the great Greek virtue was the refusal to tolerate insult or injury. Instead, it was taught by Aristotle that you should strike back immediately for the slightest offense. That was the symbol of strength in Greek concepts and thoughts. Strike back immediately for the slightest offense. That's strength. That's maybe manliness. Paul says to this church, I don't care what you've been taught. And I don't care about your culture. The love which marks a disciple of Jesus the love which fulfills the law, the second half of the Decalogue, is patient. And love acts as Jesus acts. How did Jesus act when he was reviled? He reviled not in return, but committed his cause to him who judges justly. In fact, Jesus, as he was being mocked by those who were crucified with him, and those who were standing around him, he cried, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. That's patience. God has been patient with all of us, hasn't he? Um, patience. Um, there's a story told of um, uh, Robert Ingersoll and Theodore Parker. They were having a debate about theism and uh, in the debate, of course, uh, Ingersoll was to speak first, and he stood and just, you know, atheist, blasted Christianity, just blasted the concept of there is a God that exists. And at the end of his sort of rant, he said, and if there is a God, I will give him three minutes to strike me dead. And then he sat down, and he waited for three minutes, and uh, when the three minutes were up, he announced in bravado, see, I told you, there is no God. And then, of course, Theodore Parker was to stand and respond in this debate, and he stood up and said, did the gentleman really think that he could exhaust the patience of an eternal God in three minutes? God has been amazingly patient with me. I, you know, God has been incredibly patient with me. I don't know where I would be if God hadn't been patient, long-suffering with me. And God expects us to demonstrate that love as we interact with the world out there in being patient. When I was being interviewed for this church that I uh, currently, I'm currently the minister of, one of the uh, questions that they asked me was, um, you know, is which of the qualifications for eldership do you struggle with the most? And uh, it's a great question, I guess. Um, patience, probably. I'm not a very patient person, so this cuts me to the core. But God has been patient with me, and God wants me to be patient with others as I interact with them and demonstrate something of the loveliness of Jesus. The loveliness of Jesus, I pray, 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here's the second thing. Love is kind. Many things will be forgotten, but kindness, I don't think, will easily be forgotten. People will forget how intelligent you were, how humorous you were. Uh, I think people will forget all manner of things about you. But I don't, I think they may even forget how theologically correct you were. But I don't think they'll forget your kindness. So I am now 53 years of age. I can still remember when I was a teenager that my father had picked up tuberculosis, pleurisy, pneumonia, and tottered on the brink of death for several weeks and was several months in hospital. And the hospital was about 50 miles, 60 miles away from where we live, certainly 50 miles. And my mother was traveling back and forward every day to be with my father, not knowing if her husband was gonna live or die. And of course, we were trying to keep some sort of normality at home attending hospital coming back and I can still remember now at 53 years of age the names of the women who brought us food to eat who washed our clothes um, and brought them back washed dried ironed and ready to put on I can still remember those women and their kindness to us as a family now I forget the bright sparks I sat beside in theological college I don't know where any of them are now and I've forgotten their names, but I've never forgotten the kindness of those women. How kind are you? And would anyone ever say anything of us that would relate to kindness? Of course, this is a problem in the church at Corinth. I think as the watching skeptical world looked into the church at Corinth, I think what they could see was they're not kind to us, never mind us, they're not kind to each other. They're tearing each other apart. And uh, Paul is basically writing to these folks and he's saying, well, listen, what good is all of that? Your services are fantastic. People are coming from all arts and parts to your meetings. Gifts, goodness, the church is coming down with gift. Paul writes right in the very climax of his letter and he says, but what good is all of that? Is if, if the watching skeptical world look at you and have no record of you as would relate to kindness. I uh, walked past a car one day on my way to uh, my own car, and there was a mother and a teenager standing outside the car, a mum and a daughter, and the daughter was just fair laying into her mother, like just bawling at her mother. And I walked past, got into my car, and uh, sat there for a minute just contemplating what I had just witnessed. And one of the things that struck me was this question. I wonder where she learned to talk to her mother like that. I have a sneaking suspicion it was maybe from her dad. And uh, I wonder how kind we are um, to other people. How many times have we sat with people who have been wounded in our churches because of unkind words that were said to them. And how many Christians could never witness to their neighbors because of a dreadful trail of badness and bitterness that has gone before them. Love, the love that fulfills the law, the love which marks a disciple of Jesus. The love which characterizes a Christian neighbor is kind. Love does not envy. 
He says here, love is not jealous. Two kinds of envy. There's an envy which just wants what other people have. That is destructive in itself. We want what they have, whether it's the, in the Corinthian context, it's their personality or their gifts or their possessions. So I'm not happy with who I am, who God has made me. I want, I want to be the guy that's up front every week. Why can't I be like, you know, why can't I have those? So envy, I'm not content with who I am. I want to be someone else, never content with who we are. Well, there's another kind of envy, and it's much more destructive, and it's not that I want it, it's just that I don't want them, I don't want them to have it. Well, I can live with the fact that, you know, I, I don't have this gift, and I'm not the front, and I'm not the bold and beautiful. Um, I can live with that, but I don't want you to have it. And, and that's the kind of envy that's tearing this church apart. Um, it's crazy, I think, that these folks have never come to terms with the fact that God has made us different. The church is the body. We're not in a competition with each other. We are there to put our hands in each other's hands and to uh, advance the work of the kingdom of God. And there's no concept of that, or little concept of that in the church in Corinth, that there's a room, there's room in this church for everyone, Mr. Rich, Mr. Poor, Mr. Charismatic Personality, there's room for children's workers, singers. We're just a team, a body working together in this church um, have lost sight of that. They were envious of each other. Envy is such a destructive thing. Um, and, and these folks were envious. But the love which marks a disciple a good neighbor who fulfills the law is not envious. Love acts like Jonathan acted when he discovered, and Jonathan is the crown prince, and he discovers that God has bypassed him and chosen his friend David. You know what he did? When he discovered David was to be the, the next king, he took off his princely garments and he gave them to his friend, and he, he rejoiced with his friend that God had chosen him. No envy whatsoever. It's a staggering little picture in, in the Old Testament. Are we jealous people? And do people know us as jealous? The love which marks a good neighbor is not jealous. Love does not boast. Um, it vaunteth not itself. Um, it does not parade itself around. It doesn't brag. Love does not brag. It doesn't boast. And of course, that's a problem within this church. A lot of show-offs and a lot of boasters going around, people who were, well, their heads were so big, it was a wonder they could find a point of balance which allowed them to stand upright. Um, but love does not look for a stage, a platform to accomplish its, to, to, to parade its own accomplishments. It's not always trying to tell you, like sometimes you meet people and they, they want to tell you what they've done what they've gotten, how wonderful they are. But love doesn't act like that. Love does not brag. Love takes up the role of servanthood. Love is willing to take the lowly position. Love is not full of itself. Love knows why it has, what it has, and gives the glory to God and knows that God could take it all away in an instant. Love does not brag. And there's so many... Uh, 
stories in, in the Bible, never mind anywhere else, of how God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Nebuchadnezzar, what a great king I am. Look at this kingdom that I built for next morning, grazing in the field like a wild animal. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And the love which marks a disciple of Jesus is not proud, is, it does not brag, it does not boast. So love is not proud. Fusiutai, <laughs> just a great word, I just love it. It should be Japanese seafood called, uh, maybe sushi or something called Fusiutai. <laughs> and it's a big cloud of smoke, like a big plume of smoke. And it is visible, but there's no substance to it. You can put your hand right through it. It's just empty and hollow. Love isn't proud. It's not puffed up like a big bellow of smoke. Philip says love does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. And uh, so much of this in the church at Corinth uh, is such a problem. How do you like living next door to someone who's just um, proud and arrogant? Like Oscar Wilde is clearing customs and they said, have you anything to declare? Nothing but my genius. <laughs> or... Humility and how I attained it is the book I would like to write. And, and some of the Corinthians were a bit like that. And, uh, but humility has always marked God's great saints, always. John the Baptist, they came to a crowd from Jerusalem and said, are you the one? Oh, I'm not the one. I couldn't, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal straps of the person who is the one. Such humility. No attempt to parade his own accomplishments or his own position. Just the lowly, servant-hearted ministry of John the Baptist. William Carey went to India and translated parts of the Bible into 34 Indian languages. 34. Just a brilliant man. And at a dinner party of the East Indian Company, a lady stood to humiliate him and she said, oh, Kerry, we heard back in England you were a shoemaker. Oh, no, he said, I wasn't a shoemaker. I was just a shoe mender. See, she put him down, but he's prepared to put himself even lower. Love does not break. Love is not rude. The, the, the love which marks a disciple of Jesus is not rude. The love which marks a good neighbor, uh, someone who loves his neighbors is not rude. It doesn't behave indecently or in a shameful manner. It's got good manners. Love does not embrace what is dishonorable or disgraceful. There's a graciousness, a graciousness in Christian love, which never forgets that things like tact and politeness and courtesy are lovely things. Bishop Lightfoot said of one of his students, let him go where he will, his face will be a sermon in itself. Love is not rude. Rudeness was the trademark of this church. And I think that rudeness is the trademark of many um, Christians today. We could never witness to our unsafe friends because of the rudeness of our behavior but love has got good manners. I heard about a story of Professor Blackie, Stuart Blackie, who uh, taught rhetoric at Edinburgh University. And he taught the students 
um, oral recitations, and so they had to hold the book in their right hand like this, hold the book in their and, and uh, they had to make these oral recitations. So he told students uh, how to do it and showed them how to do it, and then one by one the class took their turn. One boy held the book in his left hand, and Blackie thundered down the classroom, I told you to hold the book in your right hand. And he held up his right arm and it ended at his wrist. And Stuart Blackie was a known Christian professor and everybody in the class shifted uncomfortably. What will he do now? Went straight to the student, put his arm around him and said, I am deeply sorry. I had no idea, please forgive me. Now that story was being used as a sermon illustration in Charlotte Chapel some months, maybe even years later. And at the end of the sermon, a young man stood up at the front of the church and he held up his arm and he said, and it ended at his wrist and he said, I was that boy. And he said, Stuart Blackie went on to lead me to faith in Christ, but he could never have done it had he not put the wrong right. See, love, the love which marks a good neighbor has got good manners. It's not rude. Love is not self-seeking. It doesn't look to pursue selfish advantage. It doesn't um, it doesn't insist that all the privileges are mine and all the responsibilities are someone else's. That love cares about more than itself. And again, this is the very thing that's happening in the church of Corinth. So at the love feasts, they're rich. And this is how it, it, it functioned in society. The rich would come to the love feast. They would just go ahead and start the feast, not caring less about the poor who hadn't been relieved from their duties as slaves. They could come along later if they wanted, and who cares whether they come or they don't. And, and so by the time the poor got there, the rich had eaten themselves full and, and had drunk that much that they were all almost intoxicated, some of them intoxicated. And, and Paul's writing here at the climax of his letter, and he's saying, listen, folk, the love which fulfills the law is not self-seeking. It's not consumed with itself. It's interested in more than itself. It's interested in other people. There is a human tendency, I think it's part of our sinful nature, to be completely caught up with ourselves and our own interests. I read this stone uh, somewhere interred beneath the kir this kirkyard stain lies stingy Jimmy Wyatt, who died in morning just at 10 and saved a dinner by it. Some of us are just consumed with ourselves and our own interests. But in complete contrast to that, if you ever go to St. Paul's in London, you will read this stone. It's, to, it's laid to the memory of Sir Charles George Gordon. And this is what it says, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. He gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. I don't know who he was, but that is an amazing epitaph. Love is not self-seeking. 
Love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily uh, provoked. It doesn't have a bad temper. The word which is used here uh, is used in, in connection with being irritable or cantankerous. Love is not easily ignited. Um, now, there's an obvious similarity between love is patient and love is not easily provoked. There's a correlation between these two words. But patience seems to be, uh, seems to, the word for patience, microphemale, seems to speak more about putting up with people. But this word just talks about being irritable and cantankerous in general. Love is not easily provoked, it's not easily angered. Um, there's such a thing as a righteous anger, and we see that in Jesus. Um, as he sees the desecration of his father's house. But let's be honest, how often, how often is our anger righteous anger? Not often. For the most part, our agenda has been upset or someone has uh, upset our, uh, our ego. There's, there's been some sort of personal uh, suffering and, and we're upset, we're angry. And, and the, the truth is we're just irritable, um, cantankerous rascals who are as unchristlike un as they come. We lose control, we fly off the handle, and there is no real excuse for such outrageous responses. But love is not easily um, provoked. I, I think this is one of the things that, um, I think this is one of the things that destroys Christian homes. And I think even as the skeptical world look on at Christians, they can see some of this. Uh, you, you know, sometimes you sit and talk with a wife and she'll tell you about her husband's temper. And, uh, you know, he slams the door and, uh, and, 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 and you try and talk to the husband. He says, well, it doesn't last long. Now it is the blast of a nuclear bomb, but it does some damage in the process. Love is not easily, um, it's not easily provoked. Uh, the great colonial preacher Jonathan Edwards had a daughter who had a very bad temper. And a young man came to ask for her hand in marriage. And Edwards said, you can't have her. And the young man said to Edwards, why can't I? She's a Christian. Edwards said, she's not worthy of you. And, and the young man says, well, she's a Christian, isn't she? Yes, said Edwards, but the grace of God can live with people that you can't live with. Um, and it's pointless, isn't it, telling our wives that we love them if we fly off the handle at them. Um, it's pointless to tell our children uh, that we love them. And it's pointless trying to uh, communicate our love for our neighbor if, if, if we fly off the handle. Anyway, love has no, keeps no record of wrongs. So Loginsmai is a bookkeeping term, keeps a log, if you will, of, uh, of offenses that have been suffered. And, uh, you know, the kind of person that this is speaking about, the kind of person who's got a permanent chip on their shoulder and every wrong or grievance that they've ever suffered, if you poke them, it comes pouring out of them like a torrent. It's like, it's almost like they've got this mental black book where they've stored a record of everything that has, they've ever suffered. Well, the love which marks a good neighbor 
does not keep any record of wrongs. Um, some uh, people are amazing at this. Love does not forgive and forget. Love remembers, let's be realistic. Love remembers, but love chooses to forgive. Love acts like the father in the story of the prodigal son. I can see that dad going out to look for his son, partly because I've got two sons of my own. And, uh, but I can see the dad going out to look for his son and his wife says to him, so you've been out 465 days looking for that boy, waiting for him to come. When are you going to give up? Never. You can hear the elder brother saying, are you going out to look for him again today? Yes, and I'll keep going on looking for him until this boy who was dead to me, is lost to me, is, is returns to me. Um, love keeps no record of wrongs. And when the father sees him, despite the fact that the boy has squandered his, his, his hard-earned cash, runs to him, kisses him, welcomes him back into the family. The love which has been spoken of here is the love of the prodigal God. Love does not delight in evil. Um, it doesn't delight in evil. Um, we live in a world that revels in, 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 in stuff that offends God. Um, and even as Christians, sometimes, you know, it's almost like we delight in evil. So have you heard about so-and-so? No, no, tell me. I want to hear all the juicy stuff. Don't miss out any of the details. It's almost like we delight in evil. It's like we take some sort of strange uh, delight in, in hearing about the downfall, the destruction, the brokenness of others. But love does not delight in other people's sin. Love does not delight in things that offend God. Sometimes we have a, a tendency just to gloat over other people's failures, and that's a terrible tragedy. But love uh, does not delight in evil. Love rejoices in the truth. Instead, it rejoices in the truth. The contrast is here. Uh, the contrast here is, is not delighting in sin and rejoicing uh, with truth. It's probable that Paul is just thinking about truth as in um, you know, the truth of God's word rather than truthfulness in speech. And, and love rejoices, if you will, in what is right. Um, love rejoices in what is right, what is good, what is honorable. Those are the things that love rejoices in. Love bears all things. Um, love suffers wrong without retaliation. Um, I heard a story about a little guy who had some special needs and he had a little dog and uh, he had trouble controlling his anger and he took it out on the dog. And, and, and then when he was finished, the little dog just rolled over and licked his hand. Like I thought that is such a beautiful picture of a love that bears all things. And are we that kind of neighbor? You know, you, I, in, the, in the news that this couple lose their lives because they live next door to some guy and they have a feud about who's parking their car or where. And you think, well, if you're a Christian, 
which neither of them appear to be. But if you're a Christian, I mean, can you just bear all things? Can you just suffer wrong, even if they are in your parking place? I mean, there may be room for discussion and, and talking it through and what's reasonable, but uh, how many of us as Christians are reasonable? Well, I, I think I'm going to finish there. We could keep going on. At the end of this passage, Paul um, talks about love never fails. And I think what he means is it never drops. It never drops down. It never it never ends, actually. See, now remains faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Because the day is coming when, uh, when our faith will give way to sight. That's right. When we're in heaven. And our hopes of heaven will be realized. So faith and hope will pass away in that sense. Um, but love will never pass away. And that's why Paul says the greatest of these is love, because love is eternal, is eternal. And uh, I think, goodness, what a difference it would make if Christians really lived this. And they did love people, really love people. And, and we were these kinds of neighbors. I don't think if we, I think if we were these, this kind of neighbor, I don't think we'd have to go looking for opportunities to, talk about the love of God, I, I, I think that those opportunities would just come naturally. What makes you look so different? It's like, my friend, why do you want to help me? Like, what in the world? Why do you want to help me? What is it about you that wants to help me? Because God has helped me. And uh, somehow we need to communicate. If we're going to be the kind of neighbors that God wants us to be, we'll need to communicate love. You know, I, have a, I, I meant to bring my wallet with me. So I, I don't have it with me, but I have a little note in my wallet. I was away speaking in a conference somewhere, and I had been away for a week or so. And uh, my daughter wrote me a little note when I was away, and she gave it to me when I came home. And uh, I still have it to this day, and she wrote it when she's now 20, and uh, boyfriend on the go, and who knows what's happening next, but she gave it to me when she was about, I don't know, five, maybe, and, uh, you know, my, my, I, 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 the Lord has been really good to my family, and, and all of them have done well in life, and, and all of that, and uh, I've got boys who are sports mad, uh, trophies for everything under the sun and, and uh, girls who love to study like it's like it's their dream ever to study. So, but God has been amazing. But you know the thing that means most to me is that little note. And you know what it says? It just says, it says, I love you, Dad. You're the best dad in the world. The greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. We used to sing a song, love is the flag flying high from the castle of my heart. You know what it tells the world? The kings and presidents here. If love were the flag flying high from the castle of our hearts, I think it would make a huge difference in our neighborhoods yeah. and wherever we live. Thanks for listening, uh, gentlemen. Amen.